from the things aren't always as they may appear file comes the following story. Farmer John decided his injuries from the accident were serious enough to take the trucking company responsible to court. In court, the trucking company's lawyer was questioning Farmer John, and he said, didn't you say at the scene of the accident, I'm fine, I have never felt better in my entire life? Farmer John responded, well, let me tell you what happened. I just loaded my favorite mule, Bessie, into the, and he said, I didn't ask you for any details, just answer the question. Did you not say at the scene of the accident, I'm fine, I have never, Farmer John then interrupts and says, well, I had just got Bessie into the trail and I was driving down the road. The lawyer again interrupted and said, Judge, I'm trying to establish the fact that at the scene of the accident, this man told the highway patrolman on the scene that he was fine and he had never felt better in all of his life. Now, here we are months later, and he's trying to say that he was injured gravely in this accident. Ask him to simply answer the question. By this time, the judge was really interested in what Farmer John had to say, and he said, no, I'd like to hear what he has to say. Go ahead and tell us. So the farmer thanked the judge, and he said, well, I was saying, I just loaded Bessie into the trailer, and I was driving down the highway when this huge semi-truck and trailer ran the stop sign, hit me broadside, knocked us sideways, over into a ditch. Bessie flew out of the trailer, landed in one ditch. I flew out of the trailer and landed in the other ditch. When the police showed up, I saw the highway patrolman walk over to old Bessie, and I heard her moaning and yelling and groaning. I knew she wasn't doing very well, and the police officer then pulled out his revolver, looked at Bessie, and shot her right between the eyes. He goes, and then he came over to me and said, how are you feeling? <laughs> well, the story reminds me in some ways of the instruction the Apostle Paul has given to Timothy as Paul awaits his certain execution. Paul, waiting to die under the persecution of Nero, challenges Timothy and all God's people to not get caught up in the moment but to see the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is this, God's purpose behind all human suffering. And it's important, as Paul encouraged Timothy, who at this time faced you know, increased opposition from within the church as well as increased persecution from without, he encouraged him not to retreat or wallow in self-pity, but to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and to suffer along with Paul hardship as a good soldier in Christ Jesus. In many ways, this advice reminded me of a question that God asked the prophet Jeremiah many years prior to that, and he said this. He said, if you run with footmen and they have tired you out, then how can you compete with horses? If you run with footmen and they tire you out, then how are you going to compete with horses? In other words, what God was saying to Jeremiah was that I'm preparing you for greater work ahead. And if you can't keep up with footmen, you won't keep up with horses. You know, you're not going to be able to run with the big dogs when the time comes. See, and that's the picture that Paul challenges Timothy. The same was true of him. The same is true of all believers today. If you and I can't today, in the present tense, run with footmen, we'll never be able to run with the horses downstream. Any careful student of the New Testament knows that a true confession of faith of Jesus as Savior and Lord involves a willing, unconditional submission to him and to the work of his kingdom, whatever the cost may be, even if it's our own very death. 
in 2 Timothy chapter 2, if you've got your Bibles, we'll pick up and we'll, we'll pick up where we left off to some degree, and that is the encouragement that we find as Paul lays out for Timothy four motives for sacrificial service. Four motives for sacrificial service. And what I mean by that is simply this. Not only does the Bible tell us what we are to do as good soldiers of Christ Jesus. If you recall the last time we were together, we were told that we are to endure suffering. That we are to avoid worldly entanglements which will detract us or distract us from the things that God would have us do. We're also told that we're to exalt Jesus Christ in every area of our life. Any opportunities that present themselves as a platform to be able to exalt and bring glory to his name. You know, as it says that you know, when, when men see our good works, that they would praise our Father who is in heaven. Not that we get any glory, but we deflect it all and, and give it to him who rightly deserves all the glory and all the praise. But we're also told, and the thing I love about God's instruction, he not only tells us what to do, but he tells us why we should do it. You know, any parent knows as you try to instruct or train your children as they're younger, it was inevitable that it's a continual process of, but why do I have to do that? Why? Why? When our children were little, I mean, there were times where it was just like, why? 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 And sometimes you just go, because I say. That's when you're just tired, you know? Amen. Because <laughs> I said. Well, that doesn't, but, see, the problem with that is it doesn't really help them to understand the reasoning. You know, we can, we can be autocratic and, and, and dictatorial in, in, in our authority, wherever that is in life, but, but there's no teaching involved in that. Certainly, if you're in a position of authority, you can tell someone to do something and they'll just do it because they have to. But if you can instruct as to why it should be done, then you've got an opportunity to teach and instruct and to train and to help people begin to think in a proper term. See, God wants us to think as God thinks. He's given us the mind of Christ. He says, take, thought, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. See, and in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7 through 13, he tells us why we should live a sacrificial life. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. It is a trustworthy statement. For if we've died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. In verse 7, Paul summarizes what he has just shared as they relate to not getting distracted from our responsibilities as believers. He shared that we must endure suffering for the faith and avoid being entangled with the affairs of everyday life. He also shared the things that we must do, including tasks that seem mundane and ordinary, just the everyday grind of just living an obedient Christian life. But they're necessary in order to bring about the harvest that God has planned. The word consider, if you've got that in front of you, you'll notice he says in verse 7, consider what I say. The word consider denotes perceiving clearly with the mind. We have a reasonable, logical, rational faith. We don't have a wishful thinking type of faith that we just hope that what we believe is true. But he's saying is consider, take a good hard look at the evidence, the facts, for the purpose of coming to a conclusion. 
you know, the word consider, he's saying, is, is, is an imperative. It's saying take a good hard look at this to come to a conclusion and to come to the appropriate action. You know, it's not often that uh, I can use a baseball illustration in October. <laughs> but I might as well take advantage of it at this particular point. It would be like saying, you know, and you can tell I was working on this on the plane on the way back from New York, but it was, um, especially when I observed the umpires and, and, and how interesting it was in New York that if the Yankees don't swing in New York, it's not a strike. So that, that's just the way that it is. So it's just, you know, local rules, local rules, I guess. I don't know what it, exactly was going on there, but, but it, w- it would be like saying for an umpire to consider the location of the catcher's glove and where the ball lands or the reaction of the batter or where he sets up in order to make a decision as to whether it's a ball or strike. I like a, a year ago we had a conference for baseball chapel and the umpires were there and it was interesting. They were kind of talking about, you know, balls and strikes and the one, one young guy goes, well, you know what, you know, I, I just call him as I see him. And the second guy goes, well, I just call them as they are. And the older, more experienced guy said, no, no, you guys don't understand. They're nothing until we call them. So, you know, so, you know just, just a tip for whatever that's worth. But, but the purpose is you consider something for the purpose of coming to a conclusion. You consider a ball hit down the line if it's going to be fair or foul. And you consider, okay, did it go on this side of the pole, that side of the pole, for the purpose of coming to some kind of appropriate conclusion or to take appropriate action. And and all of life is like that, where we consider the things around us in order that we can make the proper decisions. See, the Apostle Paul is saying to Timothy, and, and still to all of us as believers, what he's saying is this. You know what, Chuck, take a good hard look at what I just said, at my instruction. Under the Lord, think over and carefully ponder what I've been saying. Look at your own life, and, and you tell me, are you willing to suffer? for the sake of the kingdom of God, in order that some may come to faith? Are you distracted by worldly entanglements? Have have worldly entanglements woven themselves into your everyday life to the point where, you know what, you, you don't even think spiritually. You don't even consider God's plan or his purpose or his his direction. You don't even consider why you're still here, but you're so caught up in the everyday worldly entanglements of this world that you forget that there's a greater, bigger picture. So consider carefully for the, pro, for the purpose of taking appropriate action. You know, consider, do you exalt Jesus Christ and all the opportunities that you have in life? Or do you credit yourself or even others? And there's nothing wrong with spreading out the credit, but there's something wrong with a believer who doesn't first exalt Jesus Christ. See, so saying, look at this. Do you deny yourself? Do you count your life as nothing? in order to faithfully serve your Lord. Take a good hard look at your life. Do you continually prepare yourself to serve your master? Are you willing to pay the price that he demands? Are you willing every day to get up and deny yourself and pick up your cross daily and follow him? Are you willing to say, Lord, not my will this day be done, but yours be done? Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to think carefully Do you really live like a good soldier of Christ or an athlete who obeys the rules or a farmer who works diligently when nobody else is even around and nobody else even notices? The everyday mundane things of life, the everyday obedience to God and and to your Christ and to your Savior. Do you really do that? If you do that, 
then you know what? Then what he says is, for the Lord will then give you understanding in everything. Is there any wonder that oftentimes Christians don't understand the mind of God? When we're so caught up and wrapped up in the philosophy of the world, the vain philosophies, deceitful things of this world, is there any wonder when you look at another believer at times they don't even understand simple biblical truth? And you go, why? Well, it's very simple. Because you're not living the life that God has called you to live. A life in a manner worthy of our calling. And we're confused spiritually. And what he's telling Timothy, he's telling me, and he's telling you, is that, you know what? If you consider what I just said and you begin to apply these things in your life, then God will give you understanding in everything. And it'll all start to make sense. See, for the Apostle Paul, everything God did made sense. He walked in obedience. Now Paul moves along to answer the question that's often asked in one form or another, and that's simply why. Why should I endure suffering for Christ's sake? Why should I endure suffering for the kingdom of God? Why should you and I deny ourselves and the world we live in gets to enjoy everything the world has to offer? Why should we deny ourselves in certain areas of life for God's sake and for his kingdom? Why can't we be conformed to this world? Why must we be transformed by the renewing of our mind? Why must we live out our lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God? Why can't we just be like everybody else? Look forward to heaven and do what we want here on earth. Why? Why should I suffer hardship as a soldier? Why should I compete to win like an athlete? Why should I toil hard and lonely like a farmer? See, it's to such questions that Paul offers four powerful motivations for sacrificial service. And the first one we find in verse 8, and that's simply this. The first motivation to live sacrificially for our Lord is the fact that he is exactly that. He is the Lord. The preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 8, he says, remember Jesus Christ. What he's saying is your service will be more aggressive. You'll be greater. You'll have greater courage. You'll have greater boldness. You have greater endurance of evil treatment and of suffering for the Lord if you remember the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just what he said and what he did, but remember who he is. Who he really is. God incarnate. God in human flesh. He is different than all the cults and all the false religions of the world want the world to believe that he is. He is not just a good man. He is not just a good teacher. He is not just a moral, historical figure. He is God in human flesh. There's only one God. Hear, O Israel, know this, that the Lord your God is one. There's one God, and there's no other gods before him. But the Bible tells us, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. In Philippians 2, it says that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, that he humbled himself and he took on the appearance, the likeness of a man, God in human flesh. Jesus said, even before Abraham existed, I am. And they picked up stones to kill him for claiming to be equal to God. 
And yet at the same time in John 14, when Philip said, show us the way to the Father, he said, Philip, how long have I been with you? For if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. For I and the Father am one. The Lord Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. Remember, it's an imperative. If you've got your Bibles in front, it's a command. It's in the same order as what we find in verse 22 to, to remind, or verse 14, or be diligent in verse 15. To be available as you go through this, to abstain and to flee and to pursue and to refuse. And earlier we saw be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. To entrust to other men. To consider. It's a command. It's imperative. He says he commands us every day to remember the Lord Jesus Christ. The preeminence of the Lord. Remember, it's like a battle cry for all good soldiers. Anyone that knows anything about history knows that there were battle cries all throughout human history. Remember the Alamo. Remember Pearl Harbor. Remember 9-11. When we were in New York this past week, we got up early and went in the subway, and Linda and I went down to ground zero. And as we saw the magnitude of the atrocity that took place, of the murder of innocent lives, we must never forget, and it's imperative because it has to do with present tense, the word is remember, but it actually means keep on remembering. In other words, don't you ever forget. Don't you ever forget for the purpose that it changes how we live in the present. When I was standing in line at JFK and we were going through all the security that was there, it would be easy to get impatient. But you know what? I remembered what I saw. I remembered the hole in the ground. I remember the scars that were there, the banners and the plaques and the pictures and the memorials all over the place. And I remembered, you know what? I'll stand here patiently in line and endure this type of treatment so that this will never happen again. See, remember the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember how he suffered. Remember what the Bible teaches. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Jesus Christ is our ultimate example, the perfect example of who we should remember and what he endured for the purposes of us taking appropriate action today in the present. In 1 Peter 2, Peter writes these words in verse 20. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? You know, it reminds me of the thieves on the cross. I mean, you know, the one thief endured patiently his treatment because he knew he was guilty. The other one did not, and he yelled over at him, man, don't you even know we're guilty for what we did, but this man, he's innocent. And yet he was looking at how Jesus endured this suffering patiently, and that was what drew him to the Savior. It says, but if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Look at that example. What, what credit is there if you do what's wrong and, and you suffer patiently? You deserve it. I deserve it. There's no credit before God. But, but what about when we do the right thing and we suffer and we patiently endure it? That is an offering, a sacrifice, a living sacrifice, pleasing to God. 
For you and I have been called for this purpose. What purpose? To suffer patiently for Christ's sake. For the purpose of God, the kingdom of God, to expand the gospel. You and I are called to suffer. Man, what a contrast it is to all the garbage theology that's in our world today. You're called to happiness. You're called to wealth and prosperity. You're called to goodness and grace and graciousness and wonderful times. And if you're suffering, man, you know what? God doesn't want you to suffer. Now, what, where, other than the pit of hell, can someone come up with that kind of nonsense? Because it is not in the word of God. God's people have been called to suffer and endure suffering patiently for his sake. For when we are weak, that is when his strength is perfected. We are to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, that is demonstrated on the cross. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us. And let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame. Consider him who experienced such hostility against men so that you and I don't grow weary and that you and I do not lose heart. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. See, remembers in the active voice, keep on remembering, never ever forget. Look at your Bible and read it in Hebrews 11. Throughout all of history, God's people have been called to suffer and to suffer patiently for the sake of the gospel, for the kingdom of God. See, the preeminence of our Lord Jesus Christ should always be in the forefront of our minds. We should always ask the question when we're suffering for doing what is right, what would Jesus do under this type of suffering? And the answer is very simple. He would suffer and endure it patiently. He would keep entrusting himself to God who judges righteously. He would trust him. See, he's the teacher of teachers, the Lord Jesus Christ. Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, came to Jesus Christ to be taught because he's the teacher of teachers. He's the greatest soldier, the greatest athlete, the greatest farmer. He fought the greatest battle and won the greatest victory on the cross. Satan bruised his heel, but he crushed his head. And with it, death and sin and the power to bind us to it. He ran the greatest race and he won the greatest prize, not for a perishable wheat wreath, but one that was imperishable, the salvation of those who would trust in him as Lord and Savior. He sowed the perfect seed, the word of God, and reaped the perfect harvest, those who would believe in him. Consider Jesus. Remember Jesus Christ. Never ever forget and keep in mind that the path that Jesus took to glory was pain before pleasure, sorrow before joy, humiliation before glorification, persecution before exaltation, death before resurrection, earthly hatred before heavenly worship. That's what the Bible teaches. That's the path that you and I should be on. He said, listen, if the world hates you, don't be so surprised. It hated me and put me to death. What makes you think it's going to love you? But be wary when all men speak well of you. Because then you've got to ask the question, what am I all about? And what do I stand for? See, we should never keep in mind 
we should always keep in mind and never forget, remember the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to remember him if you go back to 2 Timothy for two reasons. First of all, remember Jesus Christ because he's risen from the dead. We serve a risen Savior. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, that you know what, if it wasn't for the resurrection, that everything we believe is in vain. But he's alive. He has risen from the dead. He has risen just as he said. Quickly now, go tell his disciples that Jesus Christ is risen just as he said. And you shall be witnesses of my resurrection in Jerusalem and Judea and all of the world, Samaria and all over the world, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How does Jesus Christ stand alone and apart from every other belief system in the world? Jesus Christ has been risen from the dead. He is alive and we serve a risen Savior. He is alive today. When we remember that Jesus Christ is resurrected, we focus on his nature as God and his role of Savior. What greater motivation is there to serve him than knowing that he came to seek and to save that which was lost, including you and I? He suffered and went to the cross and died that just horrific death so that you and I could be free from the condemnation and the wrath of God who believe and trust in him as Lord and Savior. We have been bought with the price, the precious blood of Christ. Therefore, glorify him in your earthly body. Why should we serve him sacrificially? (laughs) Just think about what he's done for you and me. That should be the greatest motivation that anyone should ever have, that someone else gave up their life for you and I. What greater motivation do you need? He's a risen Savior. The second thing is he also is a descendant of David. According to the flesh, his human descent from David not only speaks of his humanity as our sympathetic and merciful high priest who knows all our suffering and has felt all of our pain, for he himself has also endured it, but also of his royalty and his majesty. Remember, before Jesus' conception, the angel proclaimed to Mary, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. In his last direct words to the Apostle John on Patmos, Jesus spoke of himself as the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Jesus Christ, who took on the likeness and appearance of men, can sympathize with our weaknesses, yet without sin, so that when we call upon him, we will find mercy and strength and grace and our help of need. He's been there, done that, knows our weaknesses. As a sovereign Lord, he controls everything. As Paul wrote to the Romans, hey, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. We need not fear temptation because with the temptation, God promises a way of escape. We don't have to worry about failing or being tempted beyond our abilities because with the temptation, he provides a way of escape. We don't ever have to worry about losing our salvation. Jesus said, all that the Father has given me, they are mine and they will never be lost. The point of all of this is simple. What motivation do we need for sacrificial service? Hey, just consider Jesus. Remember him. The ultimate act of sacrifice on our behalf. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the example. The son of God, the son of man, the savior, the Lord and king. And if that's not enough, Paul gives us a second uh, motivation for serving him. And it has to do specifically with the power of God. Notice in verse 9. 
He says, For which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. The second motivation we have to serve is the power of the word of God. And he, and he contrasts two things. Number one, his imprisonment versus the fact that God's word is not nor ever will be imprisoned or bound by man. He makes a simple but profound point, and I'm going to make it as simple as I can in this. Nothing, no one, can ever stop God from accomplishing his purposes, period, end of conversation. Nothing or no one can ever stop God from accomplishing his purposes. Prison didn't keep God's people from accomplishing the purposes that God had set forth for them to accomplish. All you got to do is look at Joseph. All you got to do is look at Daniel. All you got to do is look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All you got to do is look at the Apostle Paul. For when he was in prison, God used him, inspired him to write much of the New Testament. The word of God was not chained or bound by man. Man cannot stop God. Consider this. He was in prison and he did nothing wrong. His ultimate example is Jesus, who was arrested and tried, crucified, innocent, murdered, put to death at the hands of godless men. Paul was stating a truth. He wasn't whining about his imprisonment, but he was helping us to see that all of our circumstances can and should be used to further God's kingdom. What Peter wrote holds true to this day. Consider Jesus as your example so that when you suffer for doing what is right and you patiently endure it, this finds pleasure or a sacrifice acceptable to God for the purpose of using that to be able to reach others for the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul, when he was in prison, wrote to the Philippians and said, hey, I guess you all heard by now that I'm in jail. But let me also tell you something. It didn't stop God nor slow him down. This is the funniest thing. It's so amazing because... Now that I'm in jail in Rome, every one of the members of the Praetorian Guard, the closest guards to, 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 uh, to Nero, the closest guards uh, you know, to, to the Caesars, the closest people, the inner circle, got to hear the gospel. This is great. You should see it. They come, they chain them to me. And they got to sit next to me and listen to the gospel for the whole shift. And then when the next guy comes, they go, oh, man, good luck. And they chain them to it. And then by then, after several days, hey, how's it going at home? What's going on? How's, the, how, you know, how's things? How's marriage? How's the family? How's the kids? How's business? Are you trouble? How are your finances? And it was always like, uh, it was great. But his point was the gospel, the word of God will never be chained up. The word of God is living. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It's able to separate bone from marrow. People, listen up. It's the dynamite of God, the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The Word of God will never be chained up, period. It always goes forth and brings back the purpose for which God sends it. Let me share with you what I believe to be sound biblical counsel, and that is this. If you are currently fighting God in your life, Stop it. If he is leading you, follow him. If he is convicting you of sin, then recognize your guilt. Admit it before God. Turn from sin. Turn to God. Throw yourself upon his mercy, and he will forgive you. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness.
if he is convicting you of sin and your need of a relationship for, with him, stop fighting him. For a year after I heard the gospel, I fought God. I tried to run from him. I knew everything he said was true, that I'm a sinner, that I'm guilty before God. I knew that. But I would not repent. I wouldn't turn from sin and turn to God. I wouldn't ask for forgiveness. My pride got in the way. Human pride says to God, you can't tell me what to do. And the Spirit of God convicts man of sin and says, you are guilty before God, and you better repent of your sins, or there is no recourse, there is no hope for you. You will experience the wrath of God. If the Spirit of God is convicting you of sin, repent from your sin. Respond with faith to the finished work of Christ. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. I believe that God raised him up from the dead, that he is alive today, and I receive him as my Lord and Savior. That's a simple prayer that God requires of all men. Not even in those words, but as much as in the heart or the attitude that says, God, forgive me, for I am a sinner. And I believe that Jesus died for me. I believe that he rose again from the dead. And to the best of my understanding, I receive him as my Lord and Savior. I'm tired of running from you. I'm tired of resisting you. I'm tired of rejecting your love and your grace and your mercy. Forgive me this very day. Stop resisting his calling. Stop resisting him. Receive him before it's too late. God's word cannot be stopped. One of the best examples in human history Martin Luther said this, the word of God. No, I'm sorry, Martin Luther said in his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, said, The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. In the catacombs beneath the city of Rome, 600 miles dug by believers over a period of 300 years, there is an inscription found on the walls that are there, and it says, The word of God is not bound. Though I may be imprisoned, God's word will never be imprisoned by man. Paul Bunyan wrote his famous, most famous work, Pilgrim's Progress, while jailed in Bedford, England, for preaching the gospel. He looked out of his cell, and he couldn't see anything but a block wall that was there before him. He couldn't see a thing, but he wrote, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, which is the, the greatest selling book behind the Bible of all times. And he used to preach the gospel to a brick wall Trusting and believing that God's word would go out and not come back empty. Literally hundreds and thousands of people would gather on the other side to hear the word of God. Though he was imprisoned, the word of God cannot be stopped. How sad it is that we have churches who don't even open the word of God and claim to be Christian, claim to be Christ-centered, and find time for everything but the preaching, the teaching, the proclamation of the truth of God's word. How foolish we are. We must get on our knees and ask God's forgiveness. Because the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Able to separate bone from marrow. The opinions of man are just that. There's no strength, there's no power, there's no eternal force behind them. But the word of God, may we always uphold it for what it is, the truth of God. The only power that's been given to man, coupled with the Holy Spirit, to reach those who are dead in Christ for the purposes of God's kingdom. Which leads us, interestingly enough, to verse 10, which is the purpose behind everything that we do. 
Why do God's people have to suffer? Why do God's people have to suffer and be patient and endure our suffering? It says for this very reason. Or in order that. It's a purpose statement. In order that what? In order that those who God calls will come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The most powerful testimony to the world is that of lives suffering unjustly and enduring it patiently. Think about it. Think about church history. Think about Peter, James, John, Paul, beaten, arrested, in prison. They did nothing wrong. In fact, what they did was they tried to warn people of God's judgment and his condemnation. They tried to turn people from sin to the living God, the only hope that man has. And you know what the world did? Threw them in jail. You know what the world does to us? Throws us out of our place of employment. Doesn't let us into certain places. Doesn't want anything to do with us. Big stinking deal. It's amazing to me how we whine and moan and groan. What a, what a sissy, childish culture we have become. Gutless culture for Christ. We're afraid of losing friends or we're afraid of losing a job or a business deal for Christ's sake. When all throughout human history, men were put to death and women burned at the stake for their love for Jesus Christ and the truth and the power of the word of God. We need to repent. We need to be courageous and bold. We need to take a good hard look at ourselves and see who are we really in Christ. See, in order that unbelievers to whom we witness or testify through our suffering that we serve a risen Savior and we have a hope beyond this life. In our weakness, his strength is perfected. How can you endure that? How can you endure such hostility for your faith? (laughs) It's easy. Because we're strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Think about it. Why would people like John Wesley travel by foot or horseback 250,000 miles and preach 40,000 sermons? And he wrote or translated or edited more than 200 books and continually be ridiculed and ostracized and persecuted by the culture in which he lived. Why would he endure such treatment patiently? Why when he was charged with with, with charges that weren't even true? Here's what he said. I leave my reputation where I left my soul in the hands of God. Why would George Whitefield and close friend and worker of John and Charles Wesley, he spent 34 years preaching the gospel. He made 13 transatlantic voyages, which were still perilous in those days. He preached 18,000 sermons on two continents. The noted poet and hymn writer, William Cowper, wrote this. He loved the world that hated him. The tear that dropped upon his Bible was sincere. Assailed by scandal in the tongue of strife, his only answer was a blameless life. The resolute man of God heeded Peter's counsel to keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right than suffer for doing what is wrong. And finally, the motivation, the incentive to live a sacrificial life is the promise of eternal blessings. The promise of eternal blessings. 
You know, briefly, the principle or motivation to go through temporary suffering, struggles, persecution for the Lord's sake is the promise of eternal blessings. And, and, I, and I boil down to this. Let's see. Temporary suffering versus eternal blessings. Let's run it by you again. Temporary suffering versus eternal blessings. I, I got a theological word I like to share when I do those types of comparisons, and, and it's this. Duh. Duh. Think about it. Temporary suffering versus eternal blessings. You know what's amazing? I don't care if, if God calls us to suffer every day of our life for Christ's sake, even if we live to be 80 or 90 years of age, every day persecuted for the sake of the gospel. Here's what I'm thinking. 90 years is temporary suffering compared to eternal blessing. Some of us are only asked to suffer a moment in time. A speck. 90 years is a speck compared to the backdrop of eternity. How much more is just a day or a week or a month or a year? It's not even, it's even littler than a speck. Speck divided by. I was never good at math. But I know what the Bible says. For I consider, there's the word again, consider, think carefully for the purpose of taking action. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Romans 8, 18. Here in 2 Timothy chapter 11, no, chapter 2, verse 11, here's what he says. It is a trustworthy statement. What is? You can bank on it, depend on it. This is truth. You can, you can count on this. On what? This. If we've died with him, we shall live with him. Here, here it is. Let's take a look quickly as we wrap this up. Number one, what is a trustworthy statement? If we died with him, we'll live with him. What's the hope of all believers? The resurrection from the dead. Remember when Lazarus died and Jesus went to him and Martha said, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And he said, but don't you believe that your brother will rise again? And she said, yes, Lord, I believe that he will rise on that day. On the last day, he will be raised. And here's what Jesus said. Hey, if you believe in me, though you die, you shall shortly live. Have you believed this? And she said, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Savior of the world. I have believed. The moment in time, crossroad in her life, where she came to the decision that God wants us as God's people to bring every person to that crossroad, and that is this. What do you say? Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? He asked Peter the question, who do people say that I am? And he gave all kind of answers. And he said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Savior of the world, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for man did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Who do you say? I'm going to ask you, consider today, who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Is he your Lord and Savior who delivered you from the wrath of God and the condemnation of sin? Because you've trusted in him as your Lord, your Savior, you believe that he died for you, that he rose again from the dead? You believe that you are a sinner and you are in need of forgiveness of God and you went to a holy, righteous God and threw yourself upon his mercy and said, God, forgive me, for I am a sinner. Have you come to believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and more importantly, your Savior? She had. And he said, even though you die, you shall surely live. And here's the point in the context of the passage and that is this, as Paul shares with Timothy. Timothy, listen. 
I'm about to die. But it doesn't bother me at all because I'm confident of this very thing. When I'm absent from this body, I'll be present with the Lord. I am about to be killed at the hands of godless men, just as Jesus was. But don't forget, Jesus was raised from the dead. The first fruit of many who are to follow. Guess what? You and I will be raised from the dead. Death can't hold us. Death has no power over us. It's been destroyed, kaput, done at the cross, finished, over for God's people. So what he's saying is this. Why are you afraid to die? Because even though you die, you shall surely live. It's not the end of your life. It's just the beginning of a whole new eternal chapter in the presence of God. You know what Joseph said when he died in Egypt? He said, hey, haul my bones back to our land. You know why? Because the day that I'm raised from the dead, I want to be standing right there. Isn't that great? The resurrection is a promise of God for all God's people. What are we afraid of? What's the worst thing that can happen to you? Here's what I'm thinking. Some of us think losing our job is worse than dying. I would rather die than lose this gig. What? Hey, listen. The worst thing that can ever happen to anybody is dying, and it's the best thing that can happen to any believer, dying for God's sake. Considered worthy to die for his sake. Wow, that's good stuff. The second thing is he says this. For if we endure, we will reign with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. You know what the biggest argument I told you many times of the disciples was? Who was going to reign on the right and the left? Who was going to be seated on Jesus' right? Who was going to be seated on his left? They had no question that his kingdom will endure forever. If we endure, we will reign with him, which is real important because it relates to this. If we endure, if we are overcomers, if we endure persecution and suffering for Christ's sake and endure it patiently, it is evidence that we are truly born again and that we're a child of God. If we don't, then I want to show you the result. And the result is one of eternal condemnation. If we endure, we will reign. If we deny him, he will deny us. Don't miss this. Because God's people, when it comes to crunch time, will be willing to be identified with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. As I shared a few weeks ago, the young girl who walked around the cross and not on it. When it came to crunch time, she, know in who, she knew who she believed and that he was able to keep that which he had committed to him against that day. When it comes to crunch time, that's when we really find out that we're born again, that we're really children of God to those who believe in his name. When a price has to be paid and we're willing to pay it for Jesus' sake, then we know we truly belong to him. But if we deny him, he will deny us before his father is in heaven. And what he's saying is, if you deny him, and what it's talking about is in future tense, he's saying to Timothy, if when the time comes in the future, if you deny him, then you're really not of him. Because if you are one of his, you will not be ashamed of him. You will identify with him. You will go to your death for him. And Timothy did. And Paul did. Now, some of you go, but you know what? But what about those times I kind of chickened out? I had that opportunity to share, and I kind of chickened out. I was timid. I wasn't bold. I wasn't powerful. I, I wasn't the spirit of power and love and discipline. I was a wimp. All I can tell you is this. Take heart in the life of Peter, who denied his Lord before a little girl. But let me tell you something. The reason we know Peter was the real deal, because he confessed his sin of denying Jesus Christ. 
and affirmed him three times. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. And the next time he was, the next time he was confronted with the same opportunity, he considered it worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ, identifying with Jesus as his savior, beaten, and yet he rejoiced in that beating. He too suffered a martyr's death. Tradition tells us that he was crucified, but he was crucified upside down, considering himself not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord and Savior, but said, turn this thing upside down. He didn't deny him again. But I want to show you something. The result of denying Jesus Christ is very simple and yet profound. It is one of eternal condemnation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. If you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, recognizing he died for your sins and trusting in him, his death and his resurrection, the Bible says that you shall be saved. If you reject Jesus Christ as the only Lord and Savior this world will ever know, then the other side is equally true, and that is that you are already dead in your sins. You're already condemned, and you're just waiting final execution of that final sentence. You'll be separated from God for all of eternity in a place called hell. It troubles me when I hear people believe half of the gospel and not the other half. I believe that if you trust in Jesus Christ, you shall be saved that you'll go to heaven, that you'll be with God. You'll experience eternal life, even here and now and throughout eternity. But I don't believe that God would send anybody to hell. Then you haven't read the word of God. And the reason for it is very simple, and here's why. Because if we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He cannot tell us in his word that if we accept and trust in Christ as Savior, that we become children of God to those who believe in his name. He cannot tell us in his word that if we do not do so, if we reject him that we will be lost for all of eternity, that we will be condemned, the wrath of God will fall upon us who do not receive Christ, that we will be separated from God for all of eternity in hell. He cannot say one thing is true and not be true of the other. If you receive him, you are choosing life, eternal life. If you reject him, you are choosing eternal condemnation. Those are the only two choices that God allows. There's no in-between. There's no other story. Case closed. That's God's way, period. There is no other way to heaven but through the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come unto the Father but through me. Why should we live a life of sacrificial service to our Lord and Savior? One is because of his preeminence. He's God in human flesh who came to live the perfect example for us, who endured suffering and hostility at the hands of men and did so patiently. He entrusted God who judges righteously, and so should we. We see, the power of God's word will never be confined by men. No man can ever stop God's word from going out. Throughout human history, they said, you can't teach or preach in this city. You can't teach and preach in this church. You can't teach and preach in this denomination the truth of the word of God. But you know what? It never stopped God's word from going out. We'll throw you in prison. And God used, used men to, inspired by the spirit of God to write the very word of God that has been going out through centuries, penetrating the hearts and the souls of men and, and causing dead men coupled with the Holy Spirit to come alive to God and dead to sin. 
God's word will never be stopped. God's pro- program and promises and his, his plan will never be thwarted by man. His kingdom will have no end. It will endure forever. You and I can't stop him, so don't even try. Get out of the way and, and say, Lord, lead me and I'll follow you. The purpose is that of salvation. We endure such treatment patiently so others around us see that we have a hope and a risen Savior. And it attracts, us to, it attracts them to him. We're light, we're salt by how we respond to the the events of our life. Why should we be motivated to serve him sacrificially? Hey, the promise of eternal blessing. Temporary suffering versus eternal blessing. Don't ever lose sight of that. Keep it foremost in your mind, in the forefront every day. The worst that can happen is they could kill us, and it's the best thing that could ever happen because it's the greatest day we'll be delivered from this life to the next. Precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of his saints. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Man, what are we talking about? It's like, what can man do? It's like, man, we can't wait for that. We will reign with him. God's word is reliable and trustworthy. And we thank him for it. Father, thank you for this time to be together. Thank you for the power of the word of God that went out even today. The spirit of God who convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment and reminds us of the truth of God. The very word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There is no one who could ever trust in Christ as Lord and Savior who hasn't heard the word of God. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. And with his mouth he confesses. He doesn't deny him before men, but confesses him boldly before men, guaranteeing our salvation. Lord, we thank you for your word, the reliability of it. God, help us to never forget that the sufferings of this life, the temporary sufferings of this life, are not worthy to be compared to the eternal blessings that are be revealed in us. And all God's people said, amen.